Hey, Game of Thrones fans, the enhanced editions of George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones books are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just released A Feast of Crows Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, shout out to the Lannisters, and much more. All of these extras bring the thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. Get A Feast of Crows Enhanced Edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. Not available in all countries. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he just moved this table with his mind. It's Andy Greenwald. Do you know that that was... Legion! <laughs> Well, that was our show for today. Thanks for tuning in. We're not even talking about it today. Do you know that that was my um, my contribution to the show? <laughs> Is that what you did? I, first of all, I yelled a lot. I just was like, I'm going to be Chris in this room. I'm just going to be the fire starter. I'm yeah. going to get people hype. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know why I just yelled at Two, I was like, no, no, no. This idea is cool, but what if he did stuff with his mind? Yeah. And, and they were all like, what? No, it was like, cool, beat it. No, it was like, <laughs> no. I was like, no, there's this idea of mutancy. And he was like, tell me more. Uh, Andy, it's the re-up. It's Thursday. We want to say hello to all of our listeners. Today, we are going to be joined by our buddy, Chuck Klosterman, who's going to talk to us about a bunch of different pop culture things. Mm-hmm. Things? Uh, we just want to say thank you to everybody who's been sending in fan art. I look like a uh, disused peanut in one of those pictures. And then somebody also did. And, and some... I look like um, Mike Judge's famous creation, Butthead. <laughs> so that was cool. Thanks for that. Um, we uh, would love it if you just share the podcast with a friend. It helps us out a lot. Also, how about everybody who's checked out uh, Zoo Station from libraries or bought it from online book yeah. retailers? I'm going to – there's a way you can look at the fact that David Downing Zoo Station, the first official selection of the Double Down Book Club, the fact that it's sold out on Amazon currently. You can look at that and you could say, well, how many copies do they have? The book came out in 2009. Or <laughs> you could say that you and I together are the new Oprah. You know the dude who's like works in the Z section of Amazon is just like, what? It's like <laughs> Doug. Yeah, Doug at Amazon. Doug finally found a job that suited him, and we blew up his spot. We're psyched. We're going to talk about the book in a couple of weeks, so keep reading it. Send in questions about Zoo Station or topics, and uh, we'll get to them. We'll cover it soon. We're recording this on a Wednesday. It's going up on a Thursday. Tonight is the premiere of Legion, which Andy worked on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Take a bow. It's Thursday. Uh, You guys are hearing this on Thursday, so maybe you've watched the show, or maybe you're going to catch up on demand. I'm excited for you guys to see it. I think it's an exciting show, and we are going to talk about it in some creative fashion. Yeah, we'll talk about it on Monday, so you guys have a couple days to catch up on it. And and to process, you know, really let it just sink in. (laughs) That's right. Because move stuff with your mind. Okay, Andy, uh, let's first start with who won the week. I think uh, Melissa McCarthy won the week. I think Melissa, first of all, I've been thinking a lot about this. Melissa McCarthy came on to Saturday Night Live a couple days ago with this Sean Spicer imitation. It wasn't the cold open. It wasn't the first sketch after the monologue. She kicked in the door like the Kool-Aid man of comedy, like 20 minutes in, just when people were settled into their couches. Maybe they were running low on Cool Ranch Doritos. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. They weren't ready for that. No one was ready for that. And I got to say, purely, I think she would win this purely just from a performance perspective because it was a little bit like Serena Williams dropping by the courts on Alvarado. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> There's courts on Alvarado. Yeah, right by the 101. What are you, what are you a local? Come on. <laughs> 
she was so good. And it's a, you realize watching a performer who's so good at being a comedy performer and so good at being a like live audience responsive comedy performer, there is a skill level. There's like a level up that people can achieve. She was so locked in. Did you see how much gum she put in her mouth? The my favorite Saturday Night Live performers are the ones that like go far beyond committed. Yes, far beyond driven. To quote Pantera. Yeah, and uh, they never break. Never. And it's like they treat it as if they're in um, like Long Day's Journey in the Night. Like so, Will so, Ferrell, so you're Kristen Wiig used to do that. You know, Sandberg, Fallon, <laughs> Sands, Sands, Sands killed. Um, this is that that commitment to yeah. a bit that's just like psychotic almost. Yeah. And uh, the Spicer imitation was very, it, very, very committed. And, you know, considering we are dealing with the world where we have the most thin-skinned people in the world in charge of running our country into the ground. Uh, I think Twitter's made us all thin-skinned, though. Well, that's a fair point. But I don't think anybody's th- – I mean, okay, so did we get a little upset about the way we maybe looked in those caricatures? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't tweet about it. You don't see us getting upset. I was just like, I saw that picture and I was just like, what if I said out a tweet was just like, disgraceful that Pearl's art supplies <laughs> is still sending. That's what I'm saying. And meanwhile, yeah. our communications director, Zach Max, tweeting it out, yeah. being like, awesome. No, it is nice. Um, no, I, the fact, I'm just saying it worked completely on a performance and comedy level. And the fact that this is actually rattling uh, nutball cages in Washington is even more effective because it was that is what satire can do and it had teeth like Saturday Night Live hasn't had in a minute yeah congratulations Melissa McCarthy you won the week on our podcast Andy let's get a little letter from Tabo Island is it time you know dear Andy <laughs> thank you <laughs> things change everywhere they they change on Taboo Island do they? And over the first four episodes, it was solely, I think my, my job here was to tell you about things that were happening on Taboo since you weren't watching Taboo. Things that involved generally uh, semen, <laughs> laughing gas, <laughs> yes. orgies, which I guess is redundant because all good orgies involve the first two things. So we're, not lo- we're no longer talking about Taboo Island. No? We're talking about Hollander Key. Oh. Because Tom Hollander has done so much with so little on mm. this show, mm-hmm. and uh, he has two scenes in this past past week's episode. The first one is when he is asking Tom Hardy if he could maybe go on a date with this woman who used to be married to Tom Hardy's father uh, and is now living with Tom Hardy and is part of his plot against the East India Company, the Honorable East India Company, right. and the Crown. And uh, Tom Hardy's just like, you like you want to go on a date her, with her? And Tom Hollander says, not only is she among the large group of women I would sleep with, mm. she is also among the smaller group of women I would masturbate over. Oh. Yeah. Well, first of all, <laughs> kudos for sharing. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate. That's the kind of honesty and friendship that I feel like is lacking in this world. Yeah. You've never said anything like that He's to candid. me. Uh, there's also an amazing scene where uh, Hollander talks about... Um, making gunpowder with this crappy chemical that would make it faster. Mm. And he's like, the problem is is that like when the French do it, they blow things up by accident. So that was good. Uh, Taboo was actually excellent this week. They switched directors. So oh. uh, Sean T. Collins wrote a really uh, good review of this in Vulture where it was like how there was like subtle shifts in the uh, visual... Can I, as Makeup. the grateful recipient of these postcards, <laughs> you didn't seem excited deep, about this one, frankly. No, because can I can I can I give you some feedback, constructive sure. feedback? When you're selling me on on Taboo Island, when you're trying to get me to pay a visit, yeah. I don't get much vacation. I, I got I got a kid, you know. Like it, it free time is a premium at a premium. 
you're not going to sell me on subtle shifts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I appreciate that you're trying to, like, find my weak spot. Yeah, yeah. But last week, you, you were like, this dude comes on, and he's like Muggsy Bogues, and he's full of demon spunk. <laughs> you should watch the show. And I was like, oh, word, I'm interested. Okay. This week, you're like, oh, you know, the cinematography changed slightly, and the uh, shadings <laughs> I read online that... This is not the brochure for Taboo Fucking Island. Come on, man. Taboo Island's going to tear did, us Did apart. you bring in a marketing expert? Like this, you got to sell me on it. Sell I, me hard. I think I got self-conscious. I understand that. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's become a thing. This is what it must have been like on week six of Andy's airplane movies. You started feeling like you had to deliver on a, a mass scale. Not really. I felt terrific <laughs> because I was flying on airplanes getting drunk on shard. Man. Okay. Thank you for the constructive criticism on Taboo Island. We'll definitely take it take it to heart. Uh, you and the rest of the tourism board? Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break from our sponsors, and then we're going to call our buddy Chuck Klosterman. Hey guys, just want to tell you a little bit about Books. Have you ever ordered flowers online before? It is not a satisfying experience, let me tell you. You're lured in, you you think you're going to pay like $19.99, but when all is said and done, you end up paying like $75 for a bunch of half-wilted flowers that look nothing like its picture. Luckily, Books.com offers a better way. Farm fresh flowers with fully transparent pricing. No endless upsells, no gimmicks, no hidden fees. With Books, what you see is what you get. And they are sourced sustainably from eco-friendly farms located along the volcanoes of Ecuador, the hills of Colombia, and the California coast. These are the best quality flowers you can get. Plus, Books flowers aren't cut until you order them. So that way they can last up to two weeks and your dollar goes further. Books delivers to all 50 states and even offers free delivery on weekdays when you register at Books.com. And if you need something last minute, Books offers next day and same day delivery on select products. Best of all, you can be a hero this Valentine's Day and save 20% when you order early on Books.com. Their flowers will sell out for Valentine's Day, so do not delay. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com. And why don't you use promo code WATCH for 20% off? Happy Valentine's Day! This episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Curiosity Stream, a subscription streaming service that offers 1,500 documentaries and nonfiction series from some of the world's best filmmakers. Feel better about all that reality television you've been watching by knowing that you're also tuning in to factual educational programming spanning from history to science to nature and technology. They even have original exclusive documentaries such as Prescription Nutrition, exclusive four-part exploration of the extraordinary health benefits of a plant-based diet, Stephen Hawking's favorite places in which the renowned physicist Stephen Hawking travels across the universe in a CGI spaceship, making stops at some of his favorite places from Saturn to Santa Barbara. Curiosity Stream is available on almost any device, including iOS, Android, Amazon Fire, and Apple TV. And with plans starting at just $2.99 a month, you can access one of the largest nonfiction libraries available for less than it costs to buy a cup of coffee. And I buy some expensive coffees, that's true. Go to curiositystream.com slash sign up and use promo code THEWATCH to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series completely free for the first 60 days. That's insane. That's two entire months free. Again, it's curiositystream.com slash sign up. You enter promo code the watch. That's free 60 days when you sign up with the promo code the watch. Curiosity stream documentaries for the incurably curious. Andy, we are now joined by our buddy Chuck Klosterman all the way in New York City calling us on the phone. Chuck, what's up, man? Thanks so much for calling in. Well, it's my pleasure to be involved with this great endeavor. Thanks, man. I'm honored. Uh, Chuck, we're going to talk to you about um, – the best thing about talking to Chuck is we never actually know exactly what we're going to talk to you yeah. about. So we're going we're gonna to let this let this play out. But I did want to begin by saying um, 
But what if we're wrong? Your most recent book is coming in paperback in April. Is that right? Yeah, that's coming out in April, and then just a short time, like a few weeks after, uh, in hardcover, like an anthology of my journalism is coming out, kind of like wow. my fourth book. This will be the tenth book. Uh, it's like just called Ten, like the Chicago record. You're kind of this is kind of um, like your period where you're like Credence putting out two albums in a year. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Well, within a month, which I kind of thought was strange timing, but the the publisher seems to know what they're doing. So, so the yeah, the soft cover of the last book will come out, and then the next thing will come up right after. When when will someone put out your collected letters and emails? Because we would like to be just <laughs> warned about that ahead of time. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I there, there could be some rights issues with that. <laughs> Have you given you any know? thought to like, you know, how every so often you'll read that like a, a writer has just you know, late later in his career, later than where you are in your career, of course, but, you know, just like sells literally every scrap of paper he ever doodled on generally to the University of Texas. Have you have you considered where you would like to sell? Oh, yeah. Would you would you sell yours? Would you sell yours to Nick Saban? <laughs> yeah, like what well, university do you think would be best suited for your <laughs> to collective? Dab, to Dabba Swinney. Does happen after the person is dead? Yeah. Like, no, no, no. It's gen- it's, but yeah. they make the plans beforehand. Yeah, but I think they're, they're, it's very often like some of these like more rapacious <laughs> universities that have a lot of money are just like, no, we're just going to snap this up now. I think uh, I think I think, I think, I think I'd it probably go the junior college route. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the pure division like three, the North Dakota State College of Science or whatever. You know, like a two-year institution, <laughs> kind of high school with ashtrays, cheaper. You there know, you go. Kinda, yeah. Not Clemson though. Would Clemson want it? Only if they could sort of place it next to the rock. Yeah. Then I guess I would consider it. So, like, people would touch it as they come out onto the field. Well, Andy, you had a question oh, that yeah. was sort of related to Chuck's book. Right. So I so um, I think, first of all, if people haven't read What If We're Wrong, I think it's, I think it's terrific. I think it's one of your best books. And I, I think it's particularly um, relevant and interesting now because the, the central conceit is all these things that we think of as being uh, culturally important, of having permanence. We might really just be wrong about that because we're looking at it through the present's eyes. And the book was published last year, uh, was on bestseller list last year. The paperback's coming. Chuck, I feel like we've been wrong about a lot of things just in the last three or four months. So I'm wondering if you were going to add a chapter now, what else have we been wrong about? What what have had? Do you also feel that maybe we've been much more wrong than we had previously thought? Well, okay. This is sort of people. You're not the first person who's who's asked me this because yeah, there's, I think there's a, a nicer way to say that. Feel, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I kind of feel as though like we're we're just like almost plunging aggressively into wrongness. But you know, my book was mostly about or is mostly about the idea of things that we might be wrong about that we're not even considering mm-hmm. the possibility right. that we're wrong about that seem so obviously true. They're like a, a question no one would ask. And what is sort of happening culturally right now, it's not like people are wondering whether or not like mistakes have been made. Like there's a high awareness right now of sort of in the country that there is a there's a, a, a you know strong possibility that something you know dramatic a dramatic mistake has been made, um, both by the population at large or Sort of just uh, maybe this is the logical manifestation of how the country has been moving, you know, maybe for you know, 15 or 20 years. So, you know, it, it, this kind of seems like kind of contradictory, but if I had to add a chapter, working through the problem the way I've kind of described it, the way I do it with the other kind of topics, is 
the possibility that actually maybe this period of time is not nearly as dramatic and dangerous as we think. That perhaps that this will at some point sort of retroactively or retrospectively be viewed as just like a um, sort of a, a real interesting, strange political time, but actually not that far removed from other administrations, even though in the present it seems completely different in a way that nobody's ever really experienced before. So I guess if I was adding a chapter, I would be like, well, what if the thing that we're currently wrong about is maybe maybe we're wrong about how much influence and importance the president actually has on what happens to most people? Or maybe we are exaggerating uh, and we are wrong about uh, how important it is for America to sort of resemble the the relatively respected sort of position it has forever, you know, um, which I don't know if people really even want to deal with that question. But do you necessarily believe that or are you just sort of tossing that out as like that's possible that that could be the case? The, the second, the latter, because yeah. it's like many things in the book. It's like when I'm bringing up ideas about science, I'm not, you know, it's not a book of prediction. Sure. Or an attempt to say that, like, well, uh, you know, you know, what if we're wrong, but I'm right? I mean, that's not how it is. I'm yeah, just like, yeah. well, it's, 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 it is real hard, I think, to, to think about the present moment as history. You know, we think about mm-hmm. things even a hundred years or fifty years ago, totally differently, using totally different criteria than we used to sort of think about the present moment. Um, and that's always sort of my hope to kind of like jump forward into the mind of this person who hasn't even been born yet and imagine them looking back at this period. So what's something they could look back on as this period? Well, if if America collapses under sort of the weight of the situation, uh, there might be nothing to look at. But it's also possible they might be saying like, well, that was a real interesting time in American politics or maybe – American politics were reinvented during this window of time, you know, right? Well, the, uh, in a way that won't necessarily be devastating. There's sort of this tyranny of the present view, right? I mean, I think the thing that that is most intolerable to to a majority of humans, myself included, is large scale uncertainty. And you know, in the same way that if you're on a car trip to some place you've never been before, it can feel like it's taking forever, and then when you're driving back, it you know it's going to take 19 minutes, and it doesn't feel that long at all. Yeah. Um, what we don't know right now and what we can't know is if we're at the beginning of something or at the end of something. So I, I, I hear what you're saying and I feel like that makes a lot of sense because if you were, if, if we had the luxury of taking the long historical view, it it does actually, it, it does begin to appear that, that what we're experiencing now is the, in my opinion, awful, but also logical, uh, conclu- hopefully conclusion, but logical extension of where certain things have been headed, a certain type of nihilism, a certain type of partisan, uh, partisanship, a certain kind of xenophobia. But we don't know if this is the end or the beginning of it uh, in terms of its stranglehold yeah, well, you know, on our lives. Yeah. And that's hard for, to live with yeah. on a day-to-day basis. It's like you should say you're talk- we're talking about music, let's say. We're talking about music that's coming out now are usually debating, is it good or is it bad, or to what degree is it innovative? When we talk about music from the distant past, we talk less about the quality and more about what it reflected about something outside of itself. Right. Does this music from 1830 or whatever help us understand what the world like was in 1830? So now when we're looking at what's happening politically, we're of course we're talking about what is actually going on. What is the impact on the people who are being, uh, you know, um, 
directly affected by what's happening. In the future, though, it might be more like, well, you see things kind of in broader strokes, and it will be like, well, was this sort of, you know, like kind of the last gasp of a certain kind of conservative movement, or was it the beginning of a new kind of conservative movement? The, 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 the specific things that happen will not matter as much right. sort of as the theme of the uh, experience. What do you think about the the role of context and cultural appreciation? Because what you're talking about now made me think of how uh, the week of the election or immediately after the election, Chris and I on the show talked about the new Tribe Called Quest album and how, though it was recorded well before the results in November, it felt just soaked in that moment. It felt particularly rich and resonant and almost um, prescient in what it was talking about. And on the way to the studio today, I drove past, there's a big billboard on Sunset for uh, Jordan Peele's new horror movie, Get Out, which deals with ideas of, you know, of, of racism and 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 basically the society in which he was making the movie probably six months ago. That movie, I was think, trying to think about, I think that movie is going to do big business and generate a lot of conversation. Um, but the movie was almost made for, to exist in a world where President Hillary Clinton was entering her second month with almost unified Republican opposition, right? Like, that's the world the movie was made for. So how do you feel? It's almost random, the fact that we're now going to assign all this other weight to something that was made, uh, not in a vacuum, but not made with the foresight of where we were going to be. Yeah, uh, this is something I guess I, I I wouldn't say it disturbs me, but it's something I definitely don't like about uh, sort of the nature of culture now, which is that it feels as though there is now only one way to look at almost everything. That if you're not looking at something through the specific political prism of like the, the moment, it's almost not worth talking about. And I think a consequence of this is that. Assuming this political moment does pass, and maybe I mean, maybe they'll maybe Steve Bannon will start a war or something, and everything will end. But I, I think the more likely scenario is that this will be a, like, a, like a moment in time, and that when people look back on the culture of this period, many things are going to seem underrated and more valuable than they seem now, because right now there's only one way to understand everything. I think that the clearest example to me was this last Super Bowl. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear to me that this was probably the best Super Bowl of all time. You can make arguments for a few of the other Patriots games, um, you know, the, the Steelers and the Cardinals and the, one of the Cowboys, you know, Steelers Super Bowl. But it seemed like this was the best Super Bowl. And yet, immediately after it happened, uh, the, there was almost no conversation about the game itself. I mean, I received a text a second after the game from someone who said, you know, the Falcons won the popular vote. Huh. And then, like, when people were talking about, uh, you know, Lady Gaga and whatnot, it was like, okay, well, she did a song by Woody Guthrie, and, you know, his his landlord was, you know, related to Trump. And, you know, it was like everything immediately became about this secondary idea. Um, and I don't know if that's really sort of like a critically healthy way to look at the culture. Or I see, like, you know, I was talking to another friend of mine about this new George Saunders book that's coming out, you know, and the reviews seem to all have kind of the same attitude. It's like, well, this is a great book, but we really needed him to sort of mm -hmm. talk about what's happening now. You know, it's too bad he's writing about Abraham Lincoln. He should be writing about Trump. And 
you know, it's a novel. Like, well, why, why is the only way something can be meaningful or important is how much does it reflect what's happening in the world right now? Um, I kind of, I think this is like a, I mean, there are many bad things going on right now. This is not the worst, but it's something that I think about is, I don't know, something I don't like. I think that, I wonder whether or not, you know, in 20 years, there are things, there are cultural artifacts that will come out during this time period that will lose that. I mean, I I, I would imagine if we're all still here in 20 years that we'll look back on some things that happen over these years the same way people look back on it takes a nation of millions to hold us back or sandinista or double nickels on the dime or you know records that came out or movies that came out or television shows that came out and they have a cultural context they have political resonance for that time being and they can be read as documents of that time you can read sandinista as uh like discur- like a sort of digressive political essay but you can also just listen to it as like a bunch of guys from england who were sucking in all the music that they were hearing at the time in london and new york and jamaica and i wonder whether or not you know the same thing for that football game like i don't think in 20 years if they are showing an nfl films film about that comeback they're going to say and of course you know the patriots were the team of trump and the falcons were the team of the people but the patriots triumphed i mean well, like i don't think that that, that, that's that might the be lens written that... in dear leaders history books <laughs> at that point when president eric trump oh, yeah uh, like like if, if rick perlstein or something writes about this period i guess what time, i'm saying is that it's just like it's a in. it's a present tense problem but i don't think that that's going to be something that lingers unless we are truly in in a lot of trouble well i mean it's, it's a confusing thing like because Okay, something like Saturday Night Live now, it seems to be viewed with a level of importance that uh, is not only outsized, but in many ways contradicts what the idea of that show is supposed to be. Like, I, I don't I don't know if, if people are even watching that show for uh, its comedic value. They're laughing at things, they're finding humor in it, but... It's almost like this is a this is an important thing to be doing for a, a part of the populace. Like Curb Your Enthusiasm's coming coming back. I think that entire season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is going to be viewed as a political show this time. Well, and I I was just going to say, but Saturday Night Live in this good. case, I mean the 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 president is responding to it. You know, like yeah, well, it, I mean, a, he's, he's it's not v- that it, it's not like this is happening. Uh, you know, vacuum, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's making it happen. Yeah, he's he's he's. Like not only part of the problem, he's probably the center of the he's problem. He's writing their own jokes. Um, he's writing their jokes for them. Yeah. yeah. And his, you know, he he kind of came out of this kind of world of entertainment, so he doesn't really see this. You know, obviously, see much difference between the world of entertainment and the world of politics. But, um, I mean, do you guys sort of disagree with well, what I'm arguing, or do you? No, or I, do you? Uh, as we're talking about it, though, I'm I'm wondering if if we would be. I I feel like we could still be having this conversation. Um, under a Clinton administration, basically, because I feel like it's an extension of something that maybe we we all have become uncomfortable with, with to to varying degrees, which is just the relative value of a quick opinion. You know, I, I think that as a critic at Grandland, I was becoming frustrated with the 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 need for not just the you know the two thousand word piece that I would write um, coming off of watching something maybe once, but then you know that. You would have to have the tweet also. You would have to respond immediately. Everything was a very quick response. And I think that it can make you better as a 
person that can think and make you better as a thinker and as a critic and just as a, a consumer and appreciator of art to go further back. You know, I, I think that for me, one of the th most enjoyable things this year so far has been watching The Young Pope, as listeners know. But one of the reasons why is because I can find a lot of things in there that make me think about our current mm -hmm. uh, situation. But I can also find a lot of things in there that are just insane visual images of, you know, of nuns playing basketball. I, I wonder if it's the same reason why people are going back and reading Orwell or reading Philip Roth's Plot Against America, because, you know, maybe we have a different insight into these works now. And they are, in a way, they're like, like they're, these works of art, like Nixon, are tanned, rested and ready. You know what I mean? They've been there. They've They've sunk in a little bit. And now we can process them at a different speed. Yeah. And Chuck, I would just add on to that, that I feel like. Having this stuff thrown in, having this stuff be the prism through what most pop culture is going to be viewed through, having the the prism of the the Trump administration and the current political climate seems like a pretty small price to pay to have a level of mass engagement and defense of certain principles that people believe in. You know, and I think that you know, obviously, um, it's uh, frustrating if you feel like piece of art or a piece of pop culture that is uh, made outside of the context of, of the current political climate or is, is, has nothing to do with it, that it's being forced to engage with that even in the critical conversation. So that I'm sure something like Legion will, you know, like I'm sure that uh, the Americans when it comes back is going to be looked at as it's our relationship to like, all those things oh, sure. are going to be lenses that we view these things through. But I feel like it's good to talk about this stuff a lot. And I don't think that I, I personally get worried about being complacent. I feel like in the last week or so, um, I have, you know what I mean? In a way that it, it really doesn't matter one way or the other to anyone else. But I can feel a little bit of a return to kind of feeling okay on a day-to-day -day level and checking in intermittently rather than being completely plugged into the to the feed of like every single thing that happens I'm checking on and getting worried about and getting anxious over and and you know that leads me down seven rabbit holes and the next thing I know it's been two hours and I haven't left Twitter I mean like and, I feel and, like and, and you're crying I, I, that just happens randomly but you know what I mean like I, I don't know I, I don't think I, it's I feel a, like something you know, something integral has reversed though I mean yeah maybe it is because this period of time is so unique. You know, so often that belief has been, you know, expressed before and just sort of evaporated. It always does seem different. If we were, say, looking at things from the 1980s, if we were looking at MTV and, you know, and hair metal and, you know, the movie Wall Street and all these things. Well, now, years later, you look back on those things and they seem to sort of be the manifestation or the illustration of uh, that kind of political period. Mm -hmm. But at the time of their newness, that was not something people were generally talking about in the way now everything is immediately put through that lens. But don't like, you think like that has as much to do with the democratization of people having a platform and people having a voice about the things that matter to them? And back in the 80s, there was only so many places controlled by so many people in terms of what the way you would talk about MTV or hair metal back then was either Circus, Rolling Stone, or you know Time Magazine or whatever. Like the few outlets that you would have to be like, "Hey, this seems like a reaction to Reagan," you know what I mean? Or this yeah. seems like it's a I mean, product that's, of that's, that's possible, Chris. But doesn't it? I you know I was listening to uh, the podcast uh, uh, Simmons and, and Curtis did about like you know the stick to sports. Stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And 
I think what, you know, one of the things that they were sort of talking about without directly saying is that it's, you say that there's, you know, there's this multitude of sort of voices now, and that's true, but all of those voices do have the same desire, which is to be heard. And it seems as though to be heard, the only way you can do that is to now discuss what is happening politically. Like, I think if somebody was writing about the young pope, and they were like, I'm really going to write from this from a formal perspective. I'm not going to talk about, you know, it, do I see glimmers of Trump in this or whatever. I mean, that's not going to be mm-hmm. part of it. I feel like regardless of what they were arguing, that would be ignored. And and there would even be a, a percentage of the activist kind of populace who would be like upset that someone was using right. that kind of of tact to describe something, that there's almost been an enforcement of a singularity of thought about how things can be considered, not necessarily a singularity in what those thoughts are, but the topic has to be political. And like you say, is that a small price to pay? I suppose. I mean, it's not, you know, the, 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 the average person is consuming these things in their own way outside of kind of the mediated world around it. But um, I think it's weird. Like, I don't, I don't like that this has happened. I, I would say, just to flip it around a little bit, though, the reaction is going to be what the reaction is. And I, I had certain certainly had issues with Twitter even before all, all the recent catastrophes started happening. But just personally, as someone who is uh, trying to engage with art and, and, and make art and comment on art and, and make podcasts to talk about art, I'm really shaken. you know. And this has shaken me to the point where I struggle with things that I thought were core beliefs. Like, I don't know how much this beautiful television... Well, everything television, seems quaint. Well, that's what I mean. This beautiful television show, or this beautiful image, or this this wonderful scene, um, this book that I'm reading, this comic book, whatever, song, it, I'm shaken as to the value of it, either to myself or, or outside of myself, you know? And so I find myself... I'm very grateful, actually, that I'm not a daily critic at this moment, because I would be very much struggling just trying to maintain uh, a compass setting mm-hmm. as to how to process things and then how to separate them, how to separate the the signal from the noise, basically, uh, on a daily basis. You know, on Monday, we talked about, Chris and I talked about the new 24 show, and my reaction really wasn't critical of the show's faults, which I think on a structural level and on a conceptual level are major. My response literally was... was the political was, stances of it. Uh, fuck off with the show. Yeah. Because... Right now, I just I just can't, and they shouldn't, which is not a helpful criticism. But I I was I, I'm rattled to the point where I can't can't. Get I think it it's it has as much to do with how difficult it is to transition from like you, it's it depends on how you can compartmentalize in your life. If you are feeling like Michael Shannon takes shelter <laughs> most of the day, <laughs> I was last night. Yeah. It's hard to then be like, but you know what? Here's what Superstore does gets right about the sitcom, you know, and and that's that's a really difficult. And it can everything can seem frivolous outside of the your engagement with the political climate, Chuck. I wanted to it's 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 part of what we're talking about, but I did want to ask you about something else. I you know after that Super Bowl on Sunday. I uh, made a joke to to some people we work with about how now I want the Warriors to win because uh, I'm kind of like at my I feel like I have lost this this sensation of surprise is now no sensation at all it's like a drug that you do too much and you start it stops getting you high and I was wondering if like over the last few years even you know we've had the Cavs come back we have had an obsession with television shows that fundamentally shift gears or have incredible narrative upheaval, like whether it's Game of Thrones or um, Westworld Mr. or Robot. Mr. Robot. Big shocks. Yeah. Um, 
we've had in sports and in and in and in politics these enormous unforeseen events happen, whether it's uh, comebacks or data being faulty or wrong or predictability being uh, questioned. And I was wondering what your relationship is to that, because I think that you've always been somebody I ne- you never go too high and you never go too low whenever I've talked to you about something. I mean, you really like something and you can be like not so into something, but it's rare that something triggers in you like a incredibly like I hated that. I loved that, you know, um, and I wonder for somebody like you who exists, if I'm reading you right in that kind of middle ground, how you have been responding to this constant sort of table flipping that's been happening. That's a very interesting question, and it's a very good question. Uh, Thank you. A lot, you know, after the uh, after the election, I think I, I made I said this a few places where it was it was a little bit like when that Malaysian airline disappeared. Like I guess I had thought that can't happen anymore. Like a plane can't disappear. Uh, an election that so many people put so much effort into studying that it almost seems that the conventional wisdom could not be wrong about a national election anymore. Um, it's, I, I don't, I mean, I don't like, are you, are you asking like, how do, how do I feel about it or how do I relate to Have it? you, is the, is the capacity for surprise in your life as a sort of, as a consumer of popular culture, of sports, of politics, of, of, of life, is, is that the disappearance of that? Is the fact that now the, the most unlikely thing seems to happen almost every three weeks, if not every two hours, and that everything that you would think, hey, you can't come back from 28 points down, you can't come back from 3-1 down, you can't uh, have all these people be robots, or this guy be talking to a father that's not there, uh, this guy yeah. can die and come back is the is the breaking of all those rules. I mean, like I always look, you know, this is hardly World War One that we're going through, but I'm always fascinated by how, you know, world modernism grew out of World War One as a reaction to the idea that the impossible had happened, that the the catastrophic loss of life that happened was like their way of dealing with that was to shatter all the rules of the formal things that they were doing music and art and painting and in weird in a weird way i almost feel like the world has been predicting the world we are in right now you know it's been saying like you can't hold and this goes back to your book you cannot hold these things to be givens it's a luxury to think that things are set a certain so i don't know if i have a question as much as i'm saying like no i it's it's it's, it is i mean kind of tying all these things together like like the world of sports and these other things it's there is, an, or, or, or like the idea of Westworld. I don't know. I guess that that seems like something that you know, obviously that existed before. Sure. But um, uh, the thing you were saying earlier about uh, sort of like like the multitude of voices. What we're talking about now might be uh, like a, a like a very extended like manifestation of that. That for. Many years in television, for example, there seemed to only kind of be one way to think about situation comedies, one way to think about dramas. And most football coaches sort of believed the same ideas about how football was supposed to be played. Sure. And 
you know, the media sort of operated from this idea that there was kind of an institutional center. It didn't matter if you were with the New York Times or the Omaha World Herald or some tiny paper in Bangor, Maine or whatever. The principles of how you sort of operated were the same. Um, and those things have those. That's not how it is now. I mean, not now there is there really isn't anything where uh, like the details of the subject have this enforced way of considering that there's only one way to do this. And because of that, maybe that has created this kind of collective universal chaos where a lot of things that were only theoretically possible in the past or kind of as a hypothetical now actually happen in reality. Um, I think there was maybe a time in the you use the NBA as an example when if a team was down three to one in the finals, the team itself might have almost conceded that well teams don't come back from this or whatever right. we're going to play hard and we're going to try but just, just, just it's so rare that this ever happens I don't think people think that way now you know yeah I think that to to to, to bring it specifically to the election I think if, if you look back on the year that was. There were anywhere from 15 to 25 moments when everyone, and I mean everyone, obviously not every voter, but everyone who is in any way qualified to say they're a gatekeeper or a referee basically of how things are done, how we perceive of things said, well, he's done. You cannot do this. You cannot make fun of um, a a physically disabled reporter. You You cannot make fun of a POW. You cannot brag of sexual assault. And at every time... Uh, the candidate in question, you know, just just double down. And, it, and in retrospect, had he at that moment begun to behave like a standard politician and, and said, oh, I'm so sorry, or I'm, you know, that yeah. probably would have cratered it. But by continuing to yeah. act in an impossible fashion, we got where we got, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, let's, okay, let's let's be optimistic for a second. Let's say that, that, uh, Trump's presidency does not have any um, sort of ultra-profound effect on the country, and that that there is a time in ten years or whatever, and we're looking back on this. So you know, just it was just a strange thing that happened. This strange period. The one thing I think that will absolutely uh, occur from this, it's like oh, just, it was, it's going to change the kind of person who runs for president. That that there that right. you know that that the. When you look at it now, the track record for celebrities who run for office, it's not uh, – they're not undefeated, but they're pretty close. I mean, whether it's you know, Schwarzenegger or you know, Sonny Bono or any of these scenarios, you know, I, I, it does seem that the populace has changed in, that in, in a way that maybe does mirror the way Trump looks at the world. That they, the difference between a celebrity and a politician is much less than it was for everyone the, the way it seemed, you know, 25 or 30 years ago. And I'll, I'm sort of intrigued to see what, like, you know, what kind of person aspires to be president now. Because I think it's going to be a different kind of person. Bringing it back to culture for a second, we, we've talked about how you feel about um, the way these, the way uh, art is being uh, processed and commented on and, and received. Do you have any thoughts or, or opinions either way on artists themselves, be they television showrunners or songwriters or football coaches, <laughs> um, embracing this idea of the impossible? And you know, th- this is this is always the comment, and it feels particularly 
trite to me now, but you know, I certainly remember people saying it when George W. Bush won too, which is, oh, well, at least punk music will be good again. Um, but in this case, I'm talking in a broader sense of like, could we see radical innovation in ways that as just fans of things we might appreciate? D- does your brain ever go to that place? Do you feel hopeful about that? Well, yeah. I, 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 on the one hand, yes. I think that uh, uh, I think a lot of artists for you know forever have sort of believed that what they were trying to do was in some ways the impossible. That they were coming from some place where they had no access to the art they imagined in their head, and they were going to do the impossible. They were going to make it exist, you know. And that happened many, many times over. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe that thinking has always existed. But what you just said now actually kind of feeds back to what we were talking to earlier. If the only way something can be seen as meaningful or important is if it somehow kind of comments or engages with the specific politics of the time, that puts a real ceiling on creativity mm-hmm. because it makes the person who is ambitious, who wants to sort of have work that is being uh, kind of consumed and chewed up and metabolized by the populace, it forces them to put politics into their work even if that is not their natural inclination. So I, I don't know if, uh, what, what, how, if that answers your question, but that's sort of when I say like the fear of it, that's kind of what the fear I have is, that the only way it will seem to be a meaningful person is to be a political person. Yeah, I wonder, I think about a, a lot, um, I mean, when did, when did Kid A come out? It came out in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 2000, yeah. So when I think about that, that time in the contested election in, in the months afterwards, I mostly think about Kid A as a soundtrack to my life and to what people were talking about at Spin and things. That record was made by, you know, a bunch of weirdos in England who probably weren't paying the closest attention to the Bush-Gore race. You know, they were not, it's not, it wasn't their country. It wasn't even, there wasn't even the type of coverage that we've had now. Um, and it was a reaction to people wanting to be a band that they at heart were not. That they were, in fact, most of them in the band were like, I like to listen to German IDM and... Right, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be Kula Shaker and, and Oasis. I want to, I want to go. To so, this. so the internal personal reasons for making the art ended up having political resonance sure. or personal relevance outside of it, but it was not made expressly for that purpose, which maybe made it last longer. So right. maybe that's that's a, that's you know, and that's the tribe called Quest thing. That's a way of looking. Yeah, at it. I mean, I feel like the same thing happened when I saw Arrival, which was I think I saw it. I, I think I'm pretty sure I saw it once before the election and once after the election, and I liked it more after. And I do think that a lot of the way that people started talking about that movie was like, see, communication is important. Like empathy is important. Re, you know, trying to understand things that are not that are different than you is important. And all these things that have become themes over the last couple of months are sort of getting read onto this movie that had probably mm-hmm. was not intentional. But I do think it basically what it is like art is always going to be what the art is about for a variety of people. Everybody's going to have a different perspective on it. I don't think that saying, well, now this is going to be viewed through the lens of the current political s- situation is any different than any other art from sh- Shakespeare and before. You know, I, I mean, that those the reason why now all of us I mean, we've been saying for years, Game of Thrones is a really interesting show about power. But now it's actually like it's a really interesting show about power. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. People are being fed to dogs. Well, but because. All the things that you were like, well, this seems a little hysteric, hysterical. Some of the backroom, yeah. you know, like behind closed doors stuff. This seems a little ridiculous. And I'm in no way saying like, oh, this is what a resonant show and the Trump and the era of Trump. But I'm just saying it's not as fantastical as we thought it was. Chaos really is a ladder. 
Well, that's, that's an interesting point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but before we let you go, I wonder if we could, it, it, you know, we, we are trying, we are, I think, in different ways, but essentially all arguing for taking, hopefully trying to take a calmer, longer view of, of culture and sporting events. Um, <laughs> but we are faced with, in the next month, faced with, like this is some obstacle, um, these sort of, uh, you know, official annual inflection points looking back on what things mean and, and celebrating them. And we have the Grammys this weekend. We have the Oscars coming in two weeks. Um, I think we've already established that these ceremonies will be the most woke ceremonies of all time for good or ill. Um, do these serve? I mean, I, I guess it's a, it's a two part question. I think I know your answer to the first one, and it's one I generally agree with. But do, do these types of ceremonies and trophy handouts serve any purpose period, full stop, but do they serve any particular purpose this year in this climate in lieu of the conversation we're having? Um, well, okay. First of all, like, I, I, th- I do think the Grammys are stupid. I never watch them. I don't yes. know if I've ever watched them. Um, but, uh, and this will kind of seem like, I don't know, promotional or whatever. One of the things I kind of concluded upon writing this last book was there is a purpose they serve, even if I find it sort of preposterous. All award shows or specifically the Grammys? Uh, award shows in general. Okay. Okay. Um, but the Grammys are almost a, a clearer example, particularly the way the Grammys were in the 70s and 80s. Okay. Uh, less so now. I get the sense that the Grammys uh, have sort of pushed themselves to try to reflect what they sort of think is is uh, uh, kind of a, a cooler, edgier way to kind of perceive pop music. But certainly in the past, that was never it was never seen that way. And one of the people I interviewed in this book was Jonathan Latham. And we were talking about canons and literature. And what he basically said is the reason, like, there, there's sometimes you want to move to, to kind of destroy canons or whatever. Like, we don't need kind of canonical thoughts. But what the canon really does is provide the opportunity for competing canons. Mm. Like, you need things to sort of be recognized by yeah. sort of state institutions in order to sort of have um, a different kind of way to look at the world. You know, to say that, well, uh, here are the 19 things that sort of were seen as being important during this period of time, when actually these 19 things are not among the most 100 important things that were happening That's in awesome. the yeah. Here's sort of the competing canon. So I think that sort of what... Um, like, like, kind of what, in a weird way, the value of these things are. The value of these things are is so that other people can think they're wrong. Yeah, there's no spin alternative guy without a sort of already established mainstream pop music of the 80s and 90s, right? Like, there's not... Absolutely. Yeah, and then there's not even a counter, you know, and then even out of the spin alternative guy, and I mentioned this is a book that came out, I can't remember when. Like 96, the, I think. 96, it was that very was very to us. It would basically, like, gave you a, a roadmap of, like, all the, the great alternative music that had sort of come out since, I gosh, I can't, the 50s. I mean, I don't even... It, it was mostly, like, um, post-punk, not new wave, but, indie, college rock, all yeah, the stuff that... Yeah, but, uh, there were some 60s artists. Yeah, that, but, uh, and it's like uh, 60s psych people, but it was basically like a, a, you know, the alternative roadmap to popular music. And in reaction to that, then you had like sort of, I'm not necessarily directly in reaction to that, but that's when poptimism comes up sort of in the early 2000s and people start saying, well, actually, you know, this sort of raucous idea of like auteurs and people who are really serious about their music 
degrades the uh, value of stuff that was made maybe in a more industrial or, or mainstream yeah. environment. Yeah. So the, or, the, or it's just or it's the wrong priority to hold yeah. about what makes something. So good. that's really cool. You, you know, have to then, have a statement to have an uh, argument, right? We, yeah. I really I like that and I agree with it. It's interesting to think that coming out of Sunday night at the Grammys, if you're looking at like what's going to be named the album of the year of, of for 2017 or are these the 2016 Grammys? Anyway, the point being, they're already clearly what the two narratives will be, like if Adele wins or if Beyonce wins, right? And it it almost doesn't matter because the Adele record is beautifully put together and it's a it's a great it's a quote it's a I say this almost without judgment. I think it's a great album. They she it's her fans love it. It does what she does best. It sounds good. It sold a lot. The Beyonce record, similarly. Uh, I think that's a better record. I think it's a more interesting record. But the bigger takeaway is people will look back on this award show, and if Adele wins, which will be seen as, I would imagine, a more conservative, safe pick, mm-hmm. then that will be derided for sort of ignoring the culture at, at large. And if Lemonade wins, it'll be seen as a rebuke to the current political climate. And, you know, here a, 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 a feminist... Um, champion, basically stomping back onto the stage and reclaiming what's hers. All of that is just I mean, yeah, I guess extra stuff. The way I almost like that's it's, it's a real interesting example because there are many, many people right now who probably would view themselves as um, fans of both of those yeah. records. And yet, the day after this happens, um, there's going to immediately be this debate you're talking about. Exactly. I don't know if the Adele, if Adele winning would be at this point, but the way politics are at this point in the country would be the more conservative choice. I'm, I wonder if, like, if the way, um, just the way most of the youth culture feels right now about what is important and what is going on, it would seem like. Lemonade actually is much closer to the like the 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 uh, or kind of the reflection of what is happening socially. So if someone were to if Adele were to win, it would almost be the Grammys saying, "Well, we're trying to look at these things only as records." Yeah, for like four. We're trying to look yeah. at these things. Yeah, and that 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 it's it has it has nothing to do with how people. Um, feel about the ideology of these albums. It has to do with how they feel about the sonic quality when you play them. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know. I would is I would think Beyonce is favored. Is, am I wrong about this? I think, I, I, I think I so. Just, yeah. Well, I think there's always yeah. the sense. I think, to, to your larger point, the Grammys are absurd and ridiculous and make no sense and matter very little. I think the the, the, the group think, you know, that the, there are always these older voters and they always want a sort of an album exactly like Adele's album. They want a, a, a big seller with a, you know, and when I say classical, I don't mean classical music. I mean sort of a classic um, uh, classic style of music, a classic packaging, a classic performance. That would seem to me to be the front runner. But I think, as you're saying, the Grammys have tried to, 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 to lower their voting bracket, lower the age of their voters, trying to be more plugged into pop culture. And also the thing is this, like it, the Grammys have never made sense because you cannot wrap your arms around something as wildly discursive and digressive as, as any year of music to represent really anything like a consensus. But if you look at the Albums of the Year nominees this year, it's Adele, Beyonce, Justin Bieber, Drake, and Sturgill Simpson. I would say, okay, fine. Like I, My feeling about all that is fine. I think Beyonce probably deserves to win, but there's... I, I don't know if purpose was as good as the singles, but basically, like these are this is a perfectly fair reflection of what a lot of people liked. 
Um, I mean, just about. What also is interesting is like the Grammys, all of these award shows, but I I feel like in some ways the Grammys the most. Like these are industry awards, right? This is the industry looking at its industry, rewarding something within its industry. I'm always surprised a little bit by how much the artists seem to care about the Grammys. But I guess it makes sense because it's it's really sort of like a. you know, it's, it's in a way friends talking about friends about who's the coolest friend or whatever. So uh, that being the case, if you're in the music industry and you're looking at these records partially as taste, but also partially as like how you want music to be now or like what uh, uh, the music industry is in trouble. So it's like what which of those two artists or any of these five artists, I guess, sort of maybe represents the best path toward a lot of people keeping their jobs in perpetuity. That might be a different answer, you know, but as a consumer, as someone watching it, I think everyone thinks these are purely based on taste. Who is the best, who they like the best. And I don't know if that's always the case. Chuck, you're a, you're, you're a fan of, of, of the rock and roll music. The word rock was right there in the middle of your first book. Uh, are you aware of the nominees for best rock album for 2016? Can I? No, who are they? Uh, Blink 182. Yes, can I try to? It's like it's like uh, that, uh, like 21 Pilots or whatever. Are they in there? Uh, No, they're nominated for like the big categories, best new music, record of the year, best new artist, song of the year, all that stuff. Oh, so so rock. This is like the okay. Well, then then uh, then tell me who they are. I I probably have no clue. Blink 182 for their comeback record, California. Cage the Elephant, which is a still a thing. Gojira, which I've never heard of, but is evidently a they're thing. They're metal, right? Well, apparently not, because they're not nominated for metal. They're nominated for rock. Uh, oh, I thought they were a metal band. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. They definitely yeah. sound like a metal band. They're, it's a band called Gojira, and the album's called Magma. Uh, Panic at the Disco and Weezer. Hmm, well... Uh, what are we going to do with this? I feel like this is where you say that's an interesting point again. <laughs> well, no, it, you know, it's just, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of like hate, I, I feel like I repeat myself a lot, especially on podcasts, but I mean, the idea of like the, the category of rock now, that's not so far removed from the category of jazz now. Right. I mean, I, I've, I, I often mention this is like, okay, what prior to the period we're in now, what was seen as the period of time when rock music was in the most jeopardy? People would say the disco era, you know, like 1975 to, you know, to disco demolition night. And, and you know, it was like 78 or 79 or whatever. Okay. Well, within that span, when, when people were so nervous about the future of rock and would rock still exist, Fluid Mac rumors came out. First Van Halen record came out. You know, Stones were putting out records. A lot of the punk things were happening. Most of the punk things were happening. Chris during and I that were period. Chris and I were born, during, thus changing the narrative completely. Yeah, I mean, you could you could list you could make a list of twenty five records from the disco period, twenty five rock records that people would say these are all sort of like like you know like place on the mantle, important, meaningful, memorable albums. Mm-hmm. You know. How long has it been since there has been a rock record that seemed important to anyone, really, besides the person who just a, has a personal relationship with the artist themselves? I'm saying the, the record outside of itself. I would say probably In Rainbows, and that was only because of the way it was released. 
Yeah. It was the, like the like the, the the delivery mechanism mattered more than the album. So, I mean, we're talking a long time. There are people now who are who are pretty serious music fans who cannot remember a rock record being important. And I don't think there's going to be another one. I don't. Like, does, I, make, I, does that bum I, you I, out? I know people always. What does that bum you out? Well, I mean, I got more records than I can ever listen to. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't. I mean, I'm not a rock musician. So sure. Like, yeah. I, no, I just, I, just, I, uh, I just mean, yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it. You know. I. It. It. It would bum me out to the degree that, like, I like rock music. So if there was a great, you know, like, and like, you know, the the, the car seat headrest record. I think that's a great album. Okay, that's relatively new. Um, but it seems like a small thing. It seems like a niche interest or, or like or the new Japan Joys record. I think that's a, I really enjoy listening to it, but it seems like some, it seems like the equivalent, I think to, you know, like the way it was for someone to be into, you know, um, like, uh, I don't know, dance music from Germany during a certain period of the seventies yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's, like, like, not, it's not like there's no audience for it, but it's, it's a small thing. Right. So, it's I also mean, it's, not reaching anyone who isn't already micro targeted to love it. You know, it, it, it is, it is especially Japan droids to me. I, I are a band that are like, it's like a fan service band. Like you, they will take the best parts of what you love from other rock records, uh, including just the intensity, the experience, and they will make a record celebrating that for you. I just, I just can't believe well, I mean, that like, after man. this whole conversation, Chuck's saying he'll uh, saying never. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I mean, I just I I could be totally wrong about this, but it just, I don't see why it would happen. Like you know, it's I mean, when does something become huge and important? It becomes huge and important when people who barely care are interested. When the most casual person has sort of a relationship with it, because there is no way to you know, it's like like not everybody who. The 13 million people who bought like the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, they weren't all into disco, but it was like, that was the record you buy. Frampton Comes Alive was like the record you buy. Sure. These things have this, this huge meaning because like the, you know, the casual person is involved. I don't see how that could even happen now with rock music. Yeah. You, I don't see the idea. Would, like, I, rock I think is real. Coldplay was like probably the closest there was and very self-consciously so to trying to do Joshua Tree. U2 era like you, you Joshua Tree era U2 of band that matters but then mm-hmm. but then also they then spent they spent the last five years making dance tracks trying to get yeah. on pop radio which yeah. I which I don't say that pejoratively I respect that they're basically saying like well okay right. well what can a rock band that plays arenas do to continue to have a, a, a seat at that table and be relevant and it, and it, they're trying to go where the music is to, to you know to mix results mm-hmm. but that seems to be that that's the plan they're following and it doesn't seem to be like anyone else is either interested in following that or the audience isn't interested in watching them go. It's it. Yeah. Chuck, it's been awesome talking to you. We should probably wrap it up there. Uh, you can get Chuck's book, but what if we're wrong uh, <laughs> at, at, at all booksellers, I'm sure online and otherwise, it's going to get the watch bump. It's going to be sold out now like zoo station. <laughs> and then Chuck, when's that collection coming out? That the collection, the, the soft cover of the last book comes out at the end of April. And then, uh, the new, I mean, the new book, which is that old material, obviously comes out. Uh, there's some new stuff in there. Uh, comes out in May. Okay, awesome. Well, hopefully you'll come on our show and talk to us about all those things soon. Um, and we'll probably talk to well, you. Well, I was happy you asked me. It's always it's, it's cool to be on it. 
Thanks, man. All right, thanks, man. That's nice to end on a happy note. Okay, thanks to Chuck. Uh, The watch list for for Monday is Legion, the Grammys, and Girls. Yeah. And uh, we will do a Young Pope. Maybe we'll do Young Pope for the re-up next week. We'll catch up to it. To catch up to it. I think it's ending next week. I thought it was 10 episodes. I think, but remember, they're burning two per week. We're lost. We're lost in the Vatican. Lost in the Vatican. Um, All right, man. Thank you so much for listening. Andy, I'll talk to you Monday. Great job, Bransky. Thank you to CuriosityStream for sponsoring the show today. CuriosityStream is a subscription streaming service that offers over 1,500 documentaries and nonfiction series from some of the world's best filmmakers. Feel better about all that reality television you watch knowing that you are tuning in to factual, educational programming spanning from history to science, nature, and technology. Go to CuriosityStream.com slash sign up and use promo code THEWATCH to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series completely free for the first 60 days. That's two entire months free. Again, that's CuriosityStream.com slash sign up, promo code THEWATCH, CuriosityStream, documentaries for the incurably curious. One more note about the enhanced editions of George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones books. They are available exclusively on iBooks, including the just-released A Feast of Crows Enhanced Edition. It contains interactive character maps, hundreds of author notes, beautiful illustrations, a sigil guide, and much more. All these extras bring this thrilling adventure to life and help you stay on top of the epic storylines. Get A Feast of Crows Enhanced Edition exclusively on iBooks at apple.co slash Game of Thrones. It's not available in all countries. <laughs>